the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my heart is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. Counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like those who slain and lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? To those who are dead, rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds In the land of oblivion. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and am in the despair Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me. Like a flood they surround me. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. How is this dark, depressing expression of despondency the word of the Lord? How is it even in Scripture? It seems, it seems absolutely hopeless. And perhaps if you were question, questioning whether it was a good idea to come to church on this holiday weekend this morning, perhaps the reading of Psalm 88 will convince you that coming this morning was a mistake. I mean, we began our service with such joyful sounds and uplifting, and, and now Psalm 88. It's been called the saddest psalm in the book of Psalms, a fact which all commentators agree. Walter Brueggemann said, it is an embarrassment to conventional faith. I remember the first time I read this psalm. I mean, when I read it and I really grasped it, I, I was just shocked. I was taken aback at how dark and how hopeless it was. We understand that fully two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of complaint, 
Psalms of lament. Psalms that express and cry out to God for help because somebody's in difficulty. They're in dire straits. So that isn't new for the psalm to have the psalmist crying out for help. But the thing that really got me about this psalm when I, when I grasped it years ago when I was reading through the psalms was this. Not just the psalms imploring for help, but it was struck so powerfully that this psalm ends in darkness and despair. It's distinguished from all the other psalms of lament. They have at least a hope to them. The, the, the author starts out with his problem and he's crying to God. And by the end of the psalm, he gets there and he says, Oh God, you have saved me. You've rescued me. I, I praise you. I thank you. Or if he hasn't gotten to that point, he gets to the point where he can say, I can see God will be faithful. And so he, he ends on an up note. But that's the thing with this. This psalm doesn't leave us with a sense of hope at all. This lament, you know, the situation is not resolved for them. The other psalms left the author in better shape. It left us in better shape when we finished the psalm and we expressed our heart to God. But this one is different. It didn't fix things. God didn't come through, at least not yet. And in fact, it ends in darkness. So if scripture, if, if all scripture is inspired by God, even Psalm 88, and if all scripture is profitable, even Psalm 88, I'm going to ask you a question. What is the redeeming value of this psalm, this dark, depressing psalm that ends in darkness? Well, if you're here uh, for the first time, Sorry about that. <laughs> you won't know that we're in a series of messages this uh, summer entitled Songs of the Heart, Expressing Our Emotions to God. Uh, we're learning how to, um, to express our hearts to God, the varied emotions we experience, the happiness we have, the joy in Him at the same time, uh, also the sadness, the anxiety, the sorrow, the wonder, the hurt, and the pain, the joy. It's learning how to pray to God. It's learning how to express our hearts to God. But in Psalm 88, we have a person who is in a, ter in a terrible physical and emotional state. He would not be numbered among the worshipers celebrating. He, he's desperate. He's crying out to God in agony. Life is no good for him. He's distraught. He's lost his friends. He feels like God doesn't care for him. He feels like God doesn't answer his prayers. And the heavens are brass. Nothing can penetrate it. His prayers don't get through. And worse than that, he believes that God is somehow responsible for the state he's in. The pain that's plaguing him. And, and uh, life for him is absolutely intolerable. And you say to me, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm pretty happy with my life. I'm, I mean, I'm blessed. I'm here praising God, and I'm listing, lifting my voice, and I'm so grateful to him for everything that he's given to me and what he's done for me and all the rest of that. And uh, 
I'm here just lifting my voice in praise, and uh, I rejoice with you in that. You can truly sing. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But you may say, what he's saying here resonates with me in my life and what's going on. I had a friend um, when he was 27, and we had we'd known each other since we were like two or three. We lived across the road from each other, and we kind of kept uh, touch as, as time passed. And I remember getting a phone call from his brother uh, telling me, um, that Joe had fallen out of a tree and broken his neck. He was, he was cutting down some branches for his uncle. And uh, it was strange that Gerda and I were in our home and just outside of Guelph, and, and we heard uh, this low, undulating sound of what was a, uh, a helicopter. And I remember going in, in the fresh spring air out in a March night, and I could see the thing going. I didn't know that my friend was in it, going from Guelph, being airlifted to Sunnybrook Hospital. He was probably one of the most outstanding sportsmen I know. I'm talking fishing and hunting. He, relentless all the time, and he was just expert at it. And when I got this call and, and found out what had happened, I found out that my friend had broken his neck high up, and he was left a quadriplegic. I remember going to Sunnybrook to see him and going into the hospital room, and here he had that halo screwed into his, his skull, and he was lying there, and, and it broke my heart to see this strong guy in that state. And he said something to me. He said, Kev, can you scratch my nose? I mean, you can't scratch your nose I, it was such a pathetic scene. I, I remember when he came home after months of thera- therapy. He came home for the first time, and somebody tried to coax his hunting dog over to his wheelchair. And uh, they took his hand on his lap, and they put a, a potato chip on it and tried to close his finger on it, and it just fell from his fingers to the ground. And his dog thought he was rather strange in this contraption. It wasn't the person that he remembered. His wife thought, you know what? I don't want to be married to a person like this for my life. She wrote him a note and quietly left without seeing him or saying anything. How great is your life? You know, I I think at that time you're probably not singing, this is the day, this is the, you know. Your heart is broken. You're torn apart. You're despondent. I received a call in my pastoral ministry from a distraught mother. Her 19-year-old son and he had a friend who was 18. Uh, They were on the motorcycle. They had an accident and both of them were instantly killed. I remember going with this family before the visitation at the funeral home. I remember standing with this mother in front of the casket looking at her son, her only son, and she began to weep profusely. I heard, I heard groans that came out of her that, that, that are inexplicable, that, that express the deepest grief and heartache. 
I watched as she crumpled to the floor in front of the casket. She did not have the strength even to get up. They had to help her. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Or will we? I remember meeting with a a lady who was severely depressed. I spent about an hour and a half with her. And her whole countenance, everything, the life had been sucked out of her. There was nothing happy in her life. There was nothing good she could see. She couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't work. She was so, uh, she was so taken down by this terrible, terrible uh, depression. And uh, I couldn't say anything to lift her and help her. Her, her, her whole countenance was just r- right in the pit. I thought, man, I I can't seem to help this lady in any way. She was a believer. She understood who God was and what he'd done for her and what was ahead for her. But none of that seemed to make a difference in that moment. The truth is that some people are in a hole that is so deep they can't see getting out of it. Their faith is faltering. Hope is gone. Morale is non-existent. Some situations are so hopeless, humanly speaking, that those people are not singing, this is the day that the Lord has made, we'll rejoice and be glad in it. They're barely existing. And the author of Psalm 88 is one of these people. So what do you do with this demoralizing piece of Holy Scripture? What sense do we make of it? What redeeming value is there for the psalmist? And what help can this possibly be to to us? First, let me say that God included it in Holy Scripture. You get that? Because when you read it, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing God would include. Oh, we know a lot of the good things that God says, but we don't get this. There's something very interesting about this. The psalm title... Um, it is, is this. It's the longest one in all of the psalms. A song. This was to be sung. A psalm of the sons of Korah. This was for this family of musicians that served in the temple court. To the choir master. This, you're going you're gonna to be doing this piece in worship. Send this. It's to, to this family of musicians and send it to the choir master so he can sing it in the worship service and uh, sing it according to the Mahalat La'anot, which is probably a, a tune that was familiar to them. Use this tune for this song, this prayer. It's a maskal of Heman the Ezraite, probably the author of it. You say, well, why would they put all that? Because... Because God included this, all of these designations with very explicit instructions that this is supposed to be used in worship. Uh, We've never sung this one, by the way. I don't know of anybody who's put this to music and said, hey, this is a rip-roaring favorite. Let's, Let's do this one. Not at all. But this was for God's people. He gave this to us. So let's look at it just for a moment at the miserable life of the psalmist. The interesting thing is this. Uh, we don't know 
with any kind of definitiveness what the issue was he was facing. We don't know what was, was dragging him down. We don't know what his issue is. There's no clarity what, what has caused him to have such a negative and hopeless outlook. Um, I think that might be so that we can insert our name and our situation into this. <coughs> Excuse me. We did, he's done that, I think, so that we can make this our own prayer. The psalmist is desperate. He's crying out to God for help day and night. He calls out in desperation every day. When he wakes up in the morning, he calls on the name of the Lord to help him. So what seems to be his dilemma? Well, first, it's his condition. Uh, whatever his problem was, he had it, he said, since, it, since he was a youth. He, he's had it for years. He's been dealing with this for some time. It's been devastating. It's plagued him for ages. And it seems as though it, maybe it's a, a, some kind of a physical condition that he's had to live with. A condition that his soul is overflowing with troubles. Overflowing is how I feel if I go to the Mandarin restaurant, you know? Overflowing. Or, or if you were just filled with joy, that you're bursting with joy. You can't hold it in. He's bursting, but not with joy. He's bursting with trouble. It's just like he thinks he'll explode. There's so much trouble. He, he feels like, like this problem is, is being overwhelmed by the waves. Look at it in verse 7 and verse 17. You've overwhelmed me. With all your waves. Next. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. A number of years ago, my brother and I were in uh, Mexico. And um, because we didn't have wives with us, we're probably a little little more uh, out there than we should have been. In fact, Gerda says, if I was there, nothing wrong would have happened. And uh, we were in this place where there was humongous waves in Cabo San Lucas. And um, I lost sight of my brother. And I panicked. And I'm looking everywhere. Where's my brother? I didn't know that he was behind me on the shore. And, and in my distraction, all of a sudden, this humongous wave comes. It's right in front of me. And I, I couldn't get out of the way of it. And it took me, and it smashed me and tumbled me. I was so disoriented. I was just struggling. I was, I was going in, in, in circles. And, and uh, it spit me up on the shore uh, with a broken leg at my knee. And I, I, I could have broken my neck. I could have, you know, God had protected me in that way. But I know what it's like to be so overwhelmed that you're helpless in waves like that. There's nothing, not a thing you can do. And he says, you know, he feels totally engulfed. I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get up. And uh, that's how he felt, overwhelmed. He was drowning. He couldn't get out of the dark hole. And in, in uh, verse 8, I'm confined and I can't escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Have you ever cried so hard 
that you can't see straight. Your eyes are full of tears. You, you, can't, you can't see with any kind of clarity. And in, and in verse 9, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. He's, he's lacking strength. He can't cope. And he feels as though he's going to die. He's not going to make it. Without help, he's a goner. In verse 3, he says, uh, he says this, In my life draws near to the death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. Well, the second problem he has is his relationship with others. Not only the, what he's affected by internally, but his relationship with others. He's been abandoned by his friends. In verses 8 and verses 18, it says this, You've taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. You've taken me from my closest friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I mean, it's something when you're in a really bad way to have friends, to have somebody who will support you, who will be there with you, who will be a companion and walk with you. But there was something about this guy's problems and whatever it was, whether it was his health, his body, whether there was something, he was repulsive to his friends. Uh, Was he leprous? Did he have some disease that they felt was communicable or something like that? We don't know. But, But... did he have a mental disorder? Was there something that, that he couldn't get over that way? We don't know. But all his friends moved away. They abandoned him. They, they let him go. And he felt so all alone, so abandoned. But the great thing is even when your friends let you down, when they're gone, people you thought you could count on, when they, uh, when they are gone, there's the Lord. And the Lord will be with us. Didn't he say... Uh, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He'll come through. He'll be there for you. But you see, that's kind of the problem. His third issue was his relationship with God. This is probably the most distressing problem confronting the psalmist. He, He feels totally let down by God. He feels like I'm praying, but you don't hear me. The sky is brass. The heavens are impenetrable. My my. Prayers don't get to God. They just bounce off. I cry to you night and day. I call to you every day. I cry for help in the morning. And you know what? You don't hear me. These were desperate prayers. These were primal scream prayers. These weren't little nice platitudes that we say. These came from the bottom of his heart. And he feels like he's rejected by God in verse 14. Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? God is, he felt like God turned his back on him. And it feels like God doesn't care in verse 5. He says, like the slain who lie in the grave. Let's continue. God doesn't care. He's just like a dead person. He's like, he's like a dead person living among corpses on a battlefield. That's how he feels. And here's the tough thing. He felt that God was doing all this to him. He felt like God did this. Listen to what he says. You've put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me. You have taken away my closest friends. Your wrath has swept over me. You have taken my companions and my loved ones. God, it's you. You're doing all this to me. He feels like, man, maybe the God is his problem. And he's the one who made such a mess of his life. So what do we do with this? 
Uh, how, do we, how do we handle this? Is this an embarrassment to conventional faith? Hey, how's your God doing for you? What's it like to be a Christian? Pretty good, eh? I'm embarrassed. God hasn't helped me. I'm called to God, but he doesn't answer me. He doesn't do anything. Is this an embarrassment to conventional faith? Well, a lot of people would feel that way. Was this the wrong week to come to church? Mm, Maybe. But does God have something in this for us? If you were a person providing counsel to the psalmist, what would your approach be? What would you do? What would you say? I mean, would you look at him and pity him? Would you despise him? Would you think to yourself, why don't you just trust the Lord? Why don't you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and put a smile on your face and and know that God loves you and, and stop acting this way? Would you say, I'll pray for you? Or would you think, you know, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be there. You've got to be positive. Oh, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. God is doing a good thing in this. Or perhaps you'd tell him, if you had enough faith, God would get you out of this mess. God is trying to refine you. God is trying to make you something that you wouldn't be. There, there's some thought by misinformed Christians that, uh, that problems and adversity and sickness and poverty exist because we don't have enough faith. And if we just had enough faith, we wouldn't be sick and we'd be wealthy and we'd be prosperous and all the rest of that. Have you bought into something like that? And would you look uh, disdainfully at a person like this? What would you say? What would your attitude be? Or what if this is you? You say, that psalm is me. That's where I'm at in my life right now. I'm let down by God. I'm struggling terribly. I'm in a pit so deep, I can't see my way out of this. Hopeless? Yeah. Like my friend, the quadriplegic, who just died last year, fighting infection after infection after infection, having his mother into her 80s taking care of him, being a caregiver. It wasn't getting better. It wasn't getting better at all. Or that parent who's lost a child that's never coming back. Well, let's try and make some sense of this. God put this here for a purpose for us. First, I want to say that God didn't promise a life without pain and problems. You know, that is such a fundamental, that is such a fundamental truth that some of us don't really grasp. Much to the disappointment of people who believe that Christians should not and would not experience pain or sorrow or difficulties, these are the realities that Scripture speaks about and does not deny. The world we live in is a world that God originally created beautiful and good, and we chose to mess it up because we said, we're not going to obey God. We'll rebel against Him. We know better than God. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. God says, you know, if you do that, you're going to curse yourselves. And in fact, when people rebelled against God, God cursed the land. He cursed the man and the woman. 
Everything went wrong for them at that point. And we exist and live in a world in which all of these kind of things that are awful that happen in our world happen because we said to God, don't need you, but out of our lives. We'll do it our own way. The result was that God cursed the land. That's what it looks like when we remove God from the picture. I took a course a number of years ago for one of the eminent um, New Testament scholars worldwide. Just, uh, in fact, a Canadian man who's taught in the States uh, for years and years and years. Absolutely brilliant mind and ability to understand the Word of God. And uh, he'd had an experience that he was telling us in class his wife had cancer. And he had to curtail his, uh, his lecturing, his traveling, his uh, book writing and whatnot. And for a time he was caring for his wife. And he talked about her being so desperately weak and, and, uh, and ill with the, the cancer that he would literally have to carry her into the shower and shower her. And he made a statement that really, really bothered me. He said, I didn't learn anything new. And I thought, that sounds so arrogant. That sounds so awful. You didn't learn anything? You didn't learn anything about the grace of God to carry you through? You didn't learn anything about the, the grace of God that would give you strength and empowerment? You didn't learn anything about the grace of God expressed through the body of Christ, the people who brought meals, the people who prayed, the people who did things for you and helped you? But that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about this. I didn't learn anything new in terms of that my wife, because she's a strong believer and a faithful believer, shouldn't have to deal with cancer, shouldn't have to go through this, or I shouldn't. I understand I'm under no illusion of that kind of thing. I understand that God um, still loves us and that faithful believers can go through terrible things in their life. Christians are not necessarily protected from harm and sickness and accidents and all the rest of those kind of things. To be sure, we have a secure future with God where we will never, ever deal with those things again. But in the meantime, believers are confronted and, and have to endure and live with things like tragedy and loss and pain and agony. It's a part of what it means to live in this era, waiting for the final redemption that Christ will bring when he returns. You know, there was a, a person uh, in the Bible who was as fine a person as you could find. His name was Job. Uh, he was uh, living on earth, and there was, there was no one who was more righteous than he was, more godly than he was in the whole earth. But he endured a lot of things. He lost his wealth. He lost all of his ten children in one tragic accident. He lost his health so that when his friends came to see him, he's sitting in a pile of ashes, covered in weeping boils, taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping his skin. We don't want to like to think about stuff like that. We just want to think, it. I, I, I will be protected from all of that kind of thing. But that wasn't 
That wasn't Job's experience. And it was no fault of his own. It's not because he'd done something wrong or was a bad person. Folks, we can experience tragedy and loss and hurt and pain in this era. Dr. Martin Marty, uh, whom I had the privilege of hearing a number of years ago, said of Psalm 88, This psalm is a scandal to anyone who must hear it apart from more lively words. Whoever derives from Scripture a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing this page out of the volume. Ouch! God is trying to tell us that in this era we may have pain and suffering. And you may not like this, but the Bible affirms the reality of pain and suffering in this life. And we shouldn't be taken off guard by these difficulties in life as though they should never or could never happen to us. And sometimes there's no end to our suffering and we must wait till God finally takes us home when we have an eternal reward and a resolution to our problems. Well, second thing, pain and sorrow are not to be trivialized. You know, sometimes I find Christians are really, can be a little thoughtless in some ways. We can be so dismissive of other people's problems and heartaches. And uh, normally when we're struggling, it's the worst thing that has ever happened. When somebody else is struggling, well, they got to get over that. They got to deal with it. But when it happens to us, uh, we're pretty sympathetic about our own cause, not necessarily about others. But Psalm 88 in its very presence in the Bible validates the reality of suffering. Have you thought that? It is validated in Scripture that there will be suffering. Sometimes that comes by persecution, as we looked when we were working in John's Gospel. But God himself was not dismissive of suffering. And I want you to see that even Jesus is dealing with the agony of suffering and sorrow. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just hours from going to the cross, and he's there, and and these great sweat, uh, drops of sweat are falling from him, and he's praying with such desperation. Father, if there's any way, take this from me. I know what I'm headed for. I don't want to go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes we can trivialize. Jesus didn't trivialize it. God the Son didn't. And I want, to, I want you to see Jesus hanging on a cross Nailed to a cross after being flogged and beaten and scourged and kicked and punched and his, and his beard pulled out and a crown of thorns put on his head and he's hanging in nakedness and shame on a cross. And he cries out, Psalm 22. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't forsake him, but that's sure how it felt. And he validates pain and suffering that exists in this life. It's distressing. Here is Jesus praying the Psalms, acknowledging the pain and agony 
of things that people have to go through. And we do, folks, we do such a disservice to people who are going through deep and excruciating experiences when we minimize and trivialize their pain, when we offer some well-meaning but ill-conceived platitude to dismiss or ignore it or ensure them, well, it'll all be better someday. And though there's truth to that, we can so insensitively let Scripture fall from our lips that doesn't bring encouragement to anyone. This is not a time for pat answers, glibly offered. This is not a time to sing, this is the day. No, just put a happy smile on your face. It's a time to come alongside somebody, to sit with them like Job's friends did. They came and sat with him in silence for seven days. Then they had to talk. That's where they started to make a pro- have a problem. They tried to bring comfort by trying to find sin in his life and figure out what was going and all the rest of that. And in the end, God said, I'll wipe you guys out. If Job doesn't pray for you, you're done. We learn something about that. God wants us to be sympathetic with people who are going things and not to trivialize that as though it doesn't count. And finally, we're to call on God for mercy. Psalm 88 seems so hopeless, and it's disturbing that it ends without any kind of suitable resolution. But if Psalm 88 could be charged with being an embarrassment to conventional faith, Walter Brueggemann says this, He suggests that it should be an embarrassment that we should keep. If this is an embarrassment, this is one embarrassment we should keep. In reality, all stories don't end joyfully. We know that. All of us have to die at some point. All of us may go through things. Some people are not healed. Uh, Some relationships are not patched up. Some people don't get their money back when they've lost all of their, uh, their life savings in some kind of a a crooked scheme, and everybody dies. But far from being devoid of faith and destitute, this psalm, it's brimming with faith and hope. It's desperate, but there's something of great encouragement in it. The psalmist has not lost his faith. Some people lose their faith. They walk away from God. If this is how it is, I'm gone. But that's not what happened here. He's praying, and he's praying, and he won't stop praying, and he won't let go of God. He believes in God. What about you when you're in that pit and in that difficulty? Do you cry out to God? He says, Lord. If you know, Lord, when you see all Lord in capitals um, in, in the Bible, it means it's the personal name of God. It's the covenant name of God that we know as Yahweh. He calls out to Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who made a covenant, who, who made a compact, who, who is with them. He calls out to him who makes the promise and who is faithful. And, and the God, he says, and the God who saves me. He hasn't given up on God. We don't see the end of the story, but he's not given up and he still keeps crying out to God. He confesses that he doesn't have the the power to save himself, that he needs God, and so he keeps pouring out his heart in prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an outstanding church leader in Germany uh, during the time of the Nazi revolution. 
And uh, he refused uh, to knuckle under to uh, Adolf Hitler's maniacal schemes, and he was imprisoned, and he was martyred for his faith. And he, he said some words that, that reflected on Psalm 88 when he said, these are, Psalm 88, he said, these are words that worshiping people address to God. This was meant for worship. This was meant to go to God with our complaint. This is something that says, you know what? You can take this stuff to God. You can pray this to God. You can use this as a model prayer and call out to God for help. And so far from being hopeless, he's still seeking God. He's still looking. And God is worthy of prayer and worthy of worship. And he keeps pressing into God. And he's desperate and he keeps hoping even when the answer doesn't come. The second marriage I ever performed in my pastoral ministry was for an outstanding couple who were deeply devoted followers of Jesus Christ. John and Sharon were a model of faithfulness. They served. John was a, he was an OPP guy, big, strong, chiseled guy who went into the... Uh, uh, they, uh, uh, the, the rescue, search and rescue, and he went to Afghanistan to train policemen over there. I mean, but incredible Christians. And um, three years ago, in January, just before Gerda and I were going to India, we got a call from one of their family members. They had few, three beautiful, um, gifted, committed Christian daughters. Uh, incredible family. And, and we got a call that their daughter, their oldest daughter, was just killed in an accident. She was in third year medical school. She'd been home for Christmas and she was heading back from Aurelia with her boyfriend and they were driving to Ottawa and they hit a patch of ice, lost control of the vehicle and, and were hit, struck by a, uh, a semi, a tractor trailer. She was killed instantly. I heard, it broke my heart. I, I know all these kids. And um, I, I called them up because we were going to be away when the funeral was. We were going to be in India. And, and I could hear the pain of these people. I, I could hear the brokenness in losing their beautiful daughter. And uh, I'll never forget something that John said. He said, he said to me, through tears. Kev, he'll be enough. He'll be enough. I don't know how I'm going to go through it. I don't know how I'm going to make it. But I know that God will be enough for whatever we're going through. I don't know what you're going through. If musicians, if you please come. I, I, don't know, I don't know what you're going through, but I know this. God knows what you're going through. And bad things can happen to good followers of Christ. Tough things, difficult things. There is a future, I know all of that. But we ought not to trivialize and make light of it. And, and when we go through these deep things, we learn from Psalm 88 that we keep praying and we keep praying and we call out to God. And even when we don't get an answer and we, when it's not resolved and we're not better and all the rest of that, we keep trusting in God. And that's what Psalm 88 does for us. 
And we remember this. We remember this. He will be enough. I don't know how I'm going to make it, but he will be enough. And maybe that's you. Broken, hurting, confused, but you're praying. And there doesn't seem to be an answer. Hang on. Keep praying. Keep crying out to God. Keep believing. The God who saves you still hears those prayers.